0: big jacket on and in the jacket i concealed a crack pipe and some crack (laughs) because i needed one last hit right one just one more that's addicts it's like no just one more no no no, just one more and you say that a thousand times because it's never enough i got out my crack pipe and i don't think ashley even knows this yeah and uh Anyway, I I had one last two raw in the bathroom to rehab. I threw it in the trash and then I surrendered. I said, I'm done. I hope this works.
1: Welcome to the Joy of Being podcast, where we believe that true happiness is found in stripping down life's distractions and discovering how to live in the present. The journey to cultivating a present life is a constant pursuit influenced by how we choose to show up for ourselves in health, relationships, and careers. This space is dedicated to sharing our personal experiences and conversations with women whose stories inspire our journey. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Joy of Being podcast. This is your host, Julia. And Today, I am joined by a very special guest, um, someone who has known me my entire life, someone who has known Brittany for over a decade, um, and someone that we both just think will bring tremendous value and insight. Um, we're going to be talking about a wide range of things today, but without further ado, today we have on my older brother, Ryan.
0: Hey. Hi Ryan. Hey.
1: Um, my brother is our first male guest on the podcast, which is really exciting. We were trying to think of which male would best represent, you know, what we're trying to do on this podcast. And it's really to just help people feel like they aren't alone. And so my brother was someone that obviously first came to mind because my brother in his 36 years, 35 years of life has lived many lives and can offer great insight and, And um, hope to a lot of people who are going through things. Um, So, what we like to start every podcast by doing is talking about the person's sun signs and rising signs and moons, which we looked at for my brother this morning. And then we like to talk about your cultural background and upbringing. So, just talk us through, Rai. That. Talk us about your upbringing.
0: My upbringing.
1: And we're sitting in Santa Fe, New Mexico, recording this podcast, which is just so lovely, right across the street from our elementary school. So when we talk about, you know, your upbringing, we've spent a few days in Santa Fe together. And what is that?
0: Uh, You know, this place is um, the most special place for me. You know, growing up, growing up in Santa Fe was interesting I think this place can be difficult for younger people, you know, but at the same time, it has such a magical presence. Yeah. I mean, being here for, what was it, like 18 years, 19 years um, before moving abroad really shaped who I am today.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, But in that short 19 years, it was like a a big... Tug of war in Santa Fe for you because you were so much, you thought so much bigger than a lot of people, and you were really smart and you didn't like school. And so you found yourself just getting into all sorts of things because Santa Fe is such a small town, there's not much to do. And someone with your personality and your mind, talk to us about how you like, how was Santa Fe growing up for someone like you?
0: Well, you and I were on opposite sides of the spectrum, right? <laughs> Ever since we were young. Mm-hmm. I never enjoyed following the rules, whereas you were by the book. And
1: what did you like about that or wh- why, why?
0: I think it's, it's not what I liked about it. I think it's that I was just such a defiant, uh, strong-willed person that it was just following the norm of everybody else didn't interest me. Following the path everybody else was taking, you know, school, college, career. That path was one that was cut, you know, short by me at an early age. I didn't have I didn't have the desire to to do what everybody else was doing and how they were doing it. Hence why, you know, dropping out of Santa Fe high in tenth grade and moving with my girlfriend at the time to France. Uh, because, you know, I had this idea that I was going to be a cook or a chef like our dad. Mm -hmm. And my whole thought process behind that was go to culinary school, you know, become a chef and, and dad sort of kicking it into my head that if I really wanted to do what he did, that moving to France would be the best way um so so you did that i had the opportunity to do that it was just weird how it all happened you know meeting meeting charlotte uh and then her family relocating to france a few years later her and Island following them both dropping out of high school mm-hmm. i was like here's my chance to go learn how to cook and be a chef and do what dad does mm-hmm. and that for me was um this first chapter of the second life that i started living at a such young a age. young age yeah right and um i think that i found out quickly uh being a chef was not something i had any interest in doing <laughs> <laughs> and and in hindsight i'm i'm grateful for that because you know if it I taught you other things it taught me a lot of other things but back to the the point of of dad telling me that that if I wanted to be a chef, I needed to do X. So I did X and realized that it's not what I wanted to do, rather than having gone into debt, possibly finishing high school, going to culinary school, two, three, four years later, finally realizing, oh God, this isn't what I want to do, but but I'm stuck now,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? So being thrown into a kitchen.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, you went to like culinary school on steroids in a in exome Provence in a kitchen with a really intense french i mean it's just what what an experience it um,
0: was it it was it was um it was the old school way yeah right it was like the real way to do <laughs> and How cool and i got put in a kitchen with a bunch of guys who spoke no english and I tell this story like 500 times because it's just how it was. I got, I got put in there with these guys who were not happy that they had some American kid in the kitchen.
1: But you were the son-in-law, so you were also the little fucker, too, because you were like, well, we're stuck with him because he's...
0: At first, it was, it, was, it was difficult because I didn't know how to communicate with them. They weren't making any effort to speak to me in English at all so it was like you're in a room full of people who don't speak your language you don't speak their language and within three or four months i was fluently speaking and conversing with everybody yep so you know i remember when dad used to take us when we were young kids to french class and his dream was to have both of us able to speak french so if one day we moved to france or met a french you know partner it would it would be such a bonus and a plus so i got to do that the hard way too but it was it was the best way and it it created this it created this um chapter in my life that i'll never forget yeah absolutely um
1: how long were you in france in total
0: i think it was about three years I think we did almost three years before coming home. Um,
1: Okay. I want to go back though to, to our childhood and our parents, because what I also find really interesting about sibling dynamics is that we grew up in the same household with the same parents, but have two very different memories or, um, versions of our childhood and who our parents are because you had a very different relationship with dad than I did and vice versa with mom that I did and so I'm curious how do you remember our parents being like how do you remember our childhood because we and another thing just a side note we drove by some of our like childhood homes yeah. and my brother has this you know I think I have a great memory and then my brother will say like, do you remember this bench? It's right between these trees. And sure enough, we pull up and there's the bench that he's speaking about with his BB marks still there in this bench. And so I don't have any memory of that house. And my brother has vivid memories of that house and things that happened in that house that were traumatic, actually. And I don't have memory of it, but I do. It's just really deep in my subconscious. Mm-hmm. You have a better, more forefront memory. So walk us through your childhood
0: with our parents. You know, I I think you and I being the age gap that we are, which is not huge, but it's, also, and not, and it's also not like, you know, a year. So I think... A lot of the childhood memories that I have that you could label traumatic or at an age where you were still pretty little, so don't remember them. But I was just of that age where I could really start absorbing and keeping some of these core memories.
1: But the core memories too also happen between zero and seven.
0: Sure. So
1: the things that were happening when maybe I was two or three and you were six or seven, you remember obviously in a more, you could understand like oh that's not good but i couldn't but it was still affecting me as an infant sure
0: yeah and i think that this this subconscious um store we have of memory that that affects us as we get older and we can talk about that later with addiction because i think that that's it's a huge role player in shaping some future outcomes for you as a person yes absolutely. Um, you know unbeknownst to you when you're younger, yeah. So, you know, I think circling back to mom and dad and our dynamic, at least my dynamic with who I viewed in what role, and um, you know, dad is a authentic from the boat Frenchman, right? <laughs> yeah. He's very set in his ways. He's very um, stern and you know at the same time he's also such a charismatic. A, teddy, a charismatic teddy bear um, he's a tough cookie to describe you know because he didn't have the greatest childhood I think mm-hmm. so if we talk about how generational generational um, effects on
1: Parenting and
0: and child upbringing. I mean, I think you get such a wide range, but, you know, mom always seems to be the person trying to keep things calm in the house. Because I think dad was, at least when I was younger, dad was extremely hot-headed, short-fused And you had to really watch, watch yourself at all times. It was like constantly walking on eggshells with dad Mm -hmm. every single day of the week. And I think mom tried to really nurture us where dad didn't, Mm -hmm. because dad was never the soft, nurturing, you know, empathic, sensitive guy. He wore you know this mask always of i don't show any emotion um other than anger (laughs) you know Uh and that that was that was that was hard and i think i think that you have taken on more things trait wise from dad and we can talk about all that too later um Whereas I, I feel like my, my personality, when I, when I realized who dad was and I realized I didn't want to be that way mm-hmm. because it made me anxious, mm-hmm. you know, it made me feel uh, sort of like I had to close up as a kid and, and keep all my emotions to myself, mm-hmm. which we learn later in life is not what you want to do. Yeah. So You know, when I was young, it was, it was, it was intense, intense, man. And, you know, driving by that house that we, we went by the other day and those memories flashing back, the first thing that came into my mind when we made the turn into the parking lot was, was the cops, you know, in that driveway with their guns drawn and I'm hiding behind the bench and they're going in, you know, through the gate around to the front door And I'm freaking out. Mom's at work. You're inside with With Dad. Dad And
1: see, I have no recollection.
0: See, the thing I don't—I don't remember what that was about. Right. I don't remember if it was something I did. Right. If you shot a pigeon with your BB gun, (laughs) I shot a crow with my BB gun, (laughs) and it was—that was a really traumatic. thing that happens to me. Yeah. That was, that was another story, but,
1: but so anyway, so
0: it's just, there's certain, there's certain things you never forget Yeah. as a kid growing up in Santa Fe. There's so many memories here when it comes to the parent dynamics and dad, uh, because we're talking about him right now, there's a lot of memories more so believe it or not of like bad things that happened. Right. Then, good things, things right. that i can remember as a kid mm-hmm. about dad okay. even though we have pictures galore of him and i fishing on the river and having such good little time so he, going to mexico i mean yeah. all this crazy shit that he would do that,
1: that mushroom was, hunting going to the
0: you know mexico things that would so. drive mom through the roof like if you think about doing this type of stuff nowadays in a marriage you almost are, like you get this anxiety like oh my god i would never let actually Yes. Just do that, Because yeah. it sounds dangerous as fuck. Yeah. Dad was doing it all the time with us, but he was he was a pretty scary person. And
1: God, when Dad was mad,
0: oh my God! Oh my and it gosh. could be over the most mundane thing, like like you're waking up at a Saturday morning at seven thirty to yes. throw in pots and pans yes. throughout the kitchen, slamming slamming plates in the sink and cursing you know yeah. as loud as he can so everybody in the house can hear that he's Clean. upset yeah. and can hear why he's upset those are that's traumatic stuff
1: but then you also Ryan when you like when i was little like five years old and i would be in our kitchen like on scrubbing the grout with a toothbrush and like using a whole bottle of pine sole to like clean the house. And then I would tell dad, I would like go find him. And I'd be like, close your eyes. And I would lead him into the kitchen and be like, okay, open. And he'd be so proud because look at this. It's perfect. It's, and I, I, when I look back at my, my memory with dad, it was always about pleasing him and doing things that I knew he would make him happy because dad happy Was like the coolest dad, and you remember when we were little, like our dad with all our friends, like, oh my god, your dad's so cool because when he was in a good mood and happy, he was
0: wonderful and charming. I I give the credit. I give him. I give him that credit that when he was in a good mood and happy, he was one of the most pleasant, fun to be around people. Yeah, I think you develop that as sort of this coping mechanism for how he was because you were afraid of him, mad. Of him being mad yeah. and that made you uncomfortable to the point where you developed these like ocd behaviors of having to you know make sure that every corner of the house was clean including my room <laughs> 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 you remember all of the times that you would just Willingly, <laughs> willingly clean my room. And I, I always remember that as just Julia was the sweetest, most caring little sister, uh, who just wanted to make me happy.
1: Again, I wanted to make everyone happy, always.
0: I think you have this like self-sacrificing behavior where you 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 would always be wanting to do for others, especially at a very young age. And and I think that maybe some of that has handicapped other parts of your you know personality Mm -hmm. um even into our adult lives and you know it's interesting to talk about childhood dynamics because it doesn't and look aside from dad's craziness Mm -hmm. aside from who he was as a person i remember our childhood in its entirety as being a completely normal, un-abusive um, household that anybody could ask for, mm-hmm. you know, I, I I've been asked, you know, through times that I've been to therapy in recovery, and you know, now I get asked, "How was your upbringing?" My answer is always perfectly fine. Same. There's. Same. No, it wasn't like dad was no. an alcoholic. Mom was, you know, on drugs. Really? It wasn't like we had all of these traumas aside from dad just being an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. he never hit us, abused us, deprived us. Everything was always provided. Yes. Always. Yes. And they made and sure of that. And to your
1: point earlier about mom, and I want to talk about mom now because this woman deserves Oh, we have computer. to get that one out of the way. Yes. Yeah. No, Dad. Yes, that's our Dad, <laughs> and we love him. We will always love him. I mean, the the connection that we now have to you know, being half French—it's just a beautiful part of who we are, too. Yeah. To have that.
0: He gave us. He gave us a culture. Yes. He gave us a heritage. He gave us something different that we can be proud of. Yeah. And I'm very proud of it. And, same. and you know,
1: and I'll say like, aside from it being a handicap to me at times, the, the work ethic and the, the resilience that I have because of dad, I'm grateful for. And I, I same thing, like through all the things that I've been through, I always look back and say like, you know, my dad wasn't perfect. Our dad wasn't perfect. He's not perfect. Nobody is. But what he gave us, I will, I would have taken any day of the week.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't have any sort of regrets of my childhood as, as far as I wish I would have had different parents. No, yeah. You know, I, I don't think that that exists for me, but you know, our childhood shaped a lot of who we are today and being that you and I are completely different human beings in a sense of our, our personalities and our habits and, um, our emotional capacities. I think that you and I, um, it's it's an interesting concept to to think about. Mm-hmm. You know, I think uh, I think mom is probably the glue that kept everything from falling apart, though. Uh, many times,
1: not <laughs> only in our family, but in your in lives, individual in lives. My oh, my lives, in my life, like mom
0: to a fault it's almost like it's almost like she shouldn't have bailed me out as many times as she did Mm -hmm. i i I almost wish mom would have told me no i I almost wish when i was in a bind that i could have (laughs) called mom and she could have ignored my call yeah i never got that unfortunately i i and uh, you know what i she just she loved her kids and loves her kids more than you know anything, including herself. So it's it's understandable. And you know, now being a father of an almost teenager, I sort of see where she was coming from with that. Um, you know, but she she's such
1: an incredible thinker. That's what I appreciate that I've gotten from mom. Is she just she's so thoughtful and empathetic and deep what i love about her and it's maybe it's a parent thing but like loyal to a fault you could call mom and tell her anything which i have which you have
0: (laughs) some things were very 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 hard to tell her um but But she never ever no no No, mom a
1: mother's love
0: mom is a saint and I don't think there's enough good that can be said about our mom and um, who she is and how wise she is and the advice that she's given us throughout our lives um, has kept me, I mean, it's kept me from from going off some really deep, really deep uh, deep ends. ends, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Just bad places.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about that because deep places um when did you first start messing around with just substances when did you start getting into to trouble
0: you know i think i've had this addict behavior ever since i was a kid you know Uh, drugs were sort of my my last stand when it came to uh destructive behaviors Uh, but I think, you know, when it comes to my addictive personality, you can really start to get a feel for that when I was younger and, and stole a lot Mm -hmm. and lied a lot and graduated, you know, from, from that stuff to, you know, gambling a lot and.
1: Gambling where? Online?
0: Yeah. Online. And then, cause I mean, just, just the, the thought that i was somehow going to outsmart <laughs> you know the casino uh, or or if i lost x one day i could always come back and double it the next day and and it, you know it's just it's this behavior that that is almost the definition of insanity when you know you're you're doing the same thing over and over expecting a different result but i kept doing it mm-hmm. right because i thought that this next time was going to be different
1: mm-hmm. Kissing, okay, so from
0: gambling. So, so gambling. I mean, gambling and, and stealing as a kid, and and the behaviors of, of not being honest and being deceitful. Um, you know, even when I I knew I was caught, it was like, Let's find another way to get out of this. Yeah, that was just who I. That was who I was. Okay, and I think, I think that that makes it so much easier uh, once you find, drugs to really kind of take it to the extreme. Mm -hmm. And that's always kind of where I was with it. I I was never just an occasional drugger. I was never just an occasional weed smoker or an occasional cocaine sniffer. You know, it was always like, if we're gonna do it, let's do it all the way. Mm -hmm. And, And so I think my first ever time using drugs was at Santa Fe High, I was a freshman, And I went down. We we ditched one of the periods, and we went down in the Arroyo, and we um, smoked some pot. And I remember vividly going back to Mister Atterbury's class after that, and he was teaching.
1: I love that you can remember this. He was
0: teaching. He was teaching health. (laughs) Well, he taught sex ed, but he was teaching health class. And and we walked back up, and I I got so high and dizzy and just anxious that i got nauseous Mm -hmm. and felt like all of a sudden i had to throw up in the middle of the class and so i immediately left the class went to the bathroom threw up felt like such shit. my eyes were so red (laughs) i walked back into mr atterbury's classroom sat down with my head on the table between my arms because i didn't want him to see how red my eyes were it was insane Yeah anyway first experience with any drugs that was it okay and and then the second experience which was kind of um a graduation i think from from the weed was only a couple of weeks later when i was staying at a friend's house and and they fed me a bunch of mushrooms while they weren't doing any mushrooms oh, no. and the first two hours of this was amazing I felt like I was on top of the world. I was seeing shit. Everything was funny. and then I sort of dipped <laughs> into this low point. And I, you know, I think looking back on it now, knowing how that type of stuff works, um, you know, you rewind to this experience and, and two, two or three hours into this fucking thing, it starts to go downhill. I start to get anxious, I start to get scared. I start to have these flashbacks in my head. Of dad and i fishing in a river and then for some reason i'm looking at him as a little boy and like this isn't my father and i started to get like so sad it was weird it was the weirdest fucking experience and on top of that they had sat me down in front of pulp fiction Oh, so the movies play in terrible I'm, I'm eating this low in the mushroom trip by oh, myself he's not my
1: father i'm like
0: this guy's not even my <laughs> father i start crying i just want to stop i'm gonna go to sleep i'm like 15 years old gosh i have school the next morning yeah i don't get any sleep anyway it was it was a terrible experience okay so um, that's two for two and then and then what happened after that you know all of this was in a, a time frame of of a a couple of years from when I was 15 to about 17 going on 18.
1: And this is leading up to you, a meeting Charlotte and moving to France. And it's right. at Santa Fe high where you are
0: Just the flag a sheep rebel,
1: a rebel. Yeah. And he is not, we are not the typical like Santa Fe people. We're no. not, we're, we're from, you know, our parents aren't from here. We don't have a family here, which is very untraditional of Santa Fe. So when you go to Santa Fe high, you have, all the jocks and the this and the cheerleaders. And my brother is just not that. So you're a freshman. You're seeing Santa Fe high for what it is. And you're saying, fuck, no, I'm just, I can't do this. So now you're just rebelling. I'm lost. Yeah.
0: I'm lost. I have no sense of direction. I don't want to continue going to school. It does not interest me. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm, I'm at this place where I'm just doing what I want. And I had really no consequence for that the other thing about both of our parents i think is that the consequences were so short-lived and almost like instant when it came to that it was like he would blow up on you mm-hmm. he would be mad for an hour or two and then he would be over it yeah and and it would be like that that was it so i knew that i could do stupid things without having to worry about facing Tough consequences, right? Mm-hmm. So that allowed me to just continue down that road of, of stupidity and foolishness. So, you know, after those two instances of my first introduction to drugs, um, mom and dad were in Denver for a job
1: interview. I that. think it was his,
0: his job interview for Altamira, correct, after he left his last job. And this was a big deal. This yeah. was right after they lost their house or were losing, getting ready to lose the house to foreclosure, if you don't remember all that. Don't remember that. So, you know, they bought a home, and then the 2007-2008 crisis hit, mm-hmm. okay? And they were in a financial disposition that was going to foreclose the house, uh, unless dad could figure out another good-paying job. Uh, I believe, I believe, and mom will listen to this when this is over and probably correct me on some of these facts. But I think that was right at the time. And I remember, the first thing that happened in that new house we bought that was traumatic was when Frank Romero and I snuck out and and ditched lunch period, stole his mom's Mercedes while she was in California, joyrided downtown, had a blast. We were about 500 yards from his house on the way back to drop the car off before we go to the next period without being caught. We're fucking clean. We're good. Right?
1: Yeah.
0: I'm driving. Of course you are. Okay. And, and I get so close. I can see the guy's house and we're turning off on a side street and I make this stupid U-turn like an idiot in the middle of the road and we get T-bombed. Okay. T-von, a few hundred yards from Frank's house.
1: In his mom's Mercedes.
0: In his, she, okay, so being in a car accident is traumatic in itself. She wasn't going slow. It wasn't just like a fender bender. She really ran into us. All the airbags deployed, the car windshield smashed, the windshield next to my head smashed. There was glass everywhere. There's smoke coming out of the front of the hood. And I'm like 15 years old. And mom and dad are in denver and and i remember dad telling me son please don't get in any trouble while we're gone and here's what happened Mm -hmm. so like that was that was this this real sort of like inflection point where that happened and then another another thing happened and another thing happened and another thing happened Which, you know, at the end of all that, I was going down some really deep, dark places. And, you know, the the first instance after that car accident um, was when when Ricardo shot himself in his car uh, outside of our neighbor's house while mom and dad were out of town. And I had to find him.
1: It happened in that same trip?
0: yeah yeah and that that was that was um that was crazy because i remember again 15 and a half years old uh home alone mom and dad are like don't fucking do anything stupid so this car accident happened okay yeah. and then i'm at home alone trying to figure all this out and just settle down from from this traumatic event and, uh, and, and I'm talking to Ricardo on the phone and, I'm, and he's working at Domino's up there on Zaffirano by the, by the, uh, the target. And, and he's like, I'm coming over after work with Jonas and, uh, and we'll see you guys. So I had a few friends over, uh, Ashley here and this Asian girl lived down the road and we were friends with her and her other friend and Sarah Spear. And we all just went over there to do some puzzles and watch TV. We were young. we were just chilling out. And I hear Ricardo's car pull up because he has the sound system, right? So you can hear him coming from like a mile away. So it pulls up outside the house. I can hear the sound system blasting. I mean, it's blaring. About five minutes go by and I I don't see him. He doesn't come in. And um, I try to call him, no answer. was like, all right, give him another minute. Five more minutes passes, still nothing. Then all of a sudden, someone starts pounding on the door, like pounding on the door. And we jump up and we opened the door and it's jonas our other friend
1: who was in the car with him, who right? was in
0: the car with him after work they both came over and he was like Matt. freaking out yeah he said ricardo shot himself, like right next to me and he had blood on his shirt and i ran outside i like ran out right past jonas i just bolted out the door his Sound system is still blaring. You can hear just boom, 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 bass coming out of this car. So I walk and I open up the passenger door and I look in, and he is just head hunched forward. Blood is gushing out of his nose. There's blood and shit all over the window of his. Jeez, and and I'm just looking at this. And Sarah comes running behind me, peeks her head in, sees what's going on, starts screaming at the top of her lungs. Mind you, I'm home alone this weekend. I know. Mom and dad are like six hours away. And I have school the next day. Jesus Christ. And, uh, and then all the police start to show up. The chaplain shows up. They, I mean, it's... Yeah.
1: So this plays into...
0: It's another traumatic it's another, event. Yeah.
1: It's just... It, it it's plays into this addiction that had already kind of started... And now you're spiraling because so many of these traumatic events are now piling onto each other. I mean you've lost friends of yours that were really meaningful in your life and I mean Santa Fe has lost a lot of people to really traumatic things, and you have been no stranger to losing people in very traumatic ways in your young life, in a Roma, very young life. Ricardo, yeah. I mean
0: within three years within two years I I lost like three of my best friends. Yes. To tragedy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And and the thing about all of that is that not once did I seek help, seek therapy, didn't did mom or dad suggest or or you know oblige me to sit down with a therapist and go through some of these traumas so as a young kid dealing with a lot of trauma in a very brief window and having no help for that i think that that is one of the reasons why post trauma i started to find myself really enjoying the escape that drugs gave me right and i i managed to do plenty of drugs for several years up until i was maybe 20 21. then i had josephine so then ashley and i had josephine and i now am a father and with that comes like changing some shit. if you want to be a father right and then you have a span of you know seven or eight years where the drugs are are not a part of my life, really. It was more like, okay, Ashley and I drink now. Mm -hmm. I never I never really liked alcohol. I never really liked getting drunk. That feeling to me was never really my
1: your thing. It wasn't
0: my drug of choice. Right? So it didn't make my life unmanageable. Mm -hmm. But you fast forward now, Josephine is like seven or eight years old. A lot has happened. We leave New Mexico. We land in North Carolina with nothing, no money, no place to stay, really. We stayed with one of Ashley's friends. And Ashley, you have this newborn. We have a newborn and and Ashley is is having her really struggle with this postpartum depression that was never diagnosed or treated correctly. Mm-hmm. You know, slash um, alcohol consumption that is just, you know, going off the deep end. Yeah. And at that time, I'm still this young kid, in essence, who is immature, is hard headed, is still lying and being deceitful and carrying on plenty of habits from when I was younger that I never seemed to be able to find a way to get fixed before I jumped into this role of fatherhood. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, I think the point where I went south again was when my wife got her shit together. It was, it was a very interesting, uh,
1: dynamic it
0: was a, it was a weird unfolding of things mm-hmm. where ashley is now working on being the best person the best mom and cleaning and up
1: herself cleaning and up, her past cleaning and her- up her
0: side of the road yep doing all the right things seeking help and now now because she's doing that yep and she's like more involved and hands-on and then you know josie i'm taking josie to school today i'm taking picking her up like things that i wasn't used to because she was owning a bakery struggling with alcoholism depression Mm -hmm. i was just like trying to damage control so much all the time it wasn't until she got her shit together that i almost had this feeling of like uselessness it was very odd very odd and and i got into drugs again i was i was at a point where i i was somewhat successful i had plenty of money to burn on drugs and there's nothing worse than a drug addict who can afford all the drugs that he wants yeah right Thank so i was i was literally i had it all available whenever i wanted however much i wanted brought to me at my house i didn't have to go out and get it mm-hmm. and and that enabled me mm-hmm. and from there it was like Doing cocaine again, doing Xanax, graduating that to smoking crack and burning through seven or eight hundred dollars a day worth of drugs. While my wife is working a 12 step program trying to stay sober.
1: And while you are simultaneously running a very successful liquor business, business, (laughs) it's ironic. It's really ironic. And you know, Ryan, when Cause this, okay. So just for time reference, so you're 35. Mm -hmm. I remember going to North Carolina twice the year that I got married in 2017. So that was six years ago. So you were 29 and that was right before you went to rehab. So I remember going to North Carolina and being with you and you were up till All hours of the night. It was like 2 a.m. And I remember I was like, Where is he? And I went out to your warehouse that you have on your property. And I opened the door and you're just like blaring this like rock music and you're packing bottles and you're just like wide awake. And you're like, Do you want to go get something to eat? Are you hungry? And I'm like, No, I was high high as fuck. I was high as fuck.
0: And and And
1: I, but here's what like, (laughs) again, we talk about. Sibling dynamics for me as a sister, like I remember that, but not thinking. Never did I think you were on drugs. That's the that's where I think I was so naive because that happened. I left. I was like, okay, he's busy and he's, you know, to your point, you were successful and you were, you were like, I have to just keep this moving. It's like a very fast paced industry and we got to just keep moving. And I went back a few months later, right before my wedding same thing, like very hyper behavior. And then literally like right after my wedding was when mom flew out and mom called me and was like, Oh, it's bad. It's
0: real bad. And I was like, I,
1: yeah. And so see
0: the first layer of the onion.
1: So it was, you hit and you almost died. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: So like, I guess my question is at what point did you finally hit? rock bottom like where what was it
0: so you know when, when when i was at the point where mom came out she came out twice the first time was a failed attempt at taking me to rehab you know one who one sought
1: of, mom to come out though was it, it actually
0: so you know one of the hardest things to do as someone who's not a drug user or an addict, um, like a family member of one. It's so hard to persuade an addict to do anything because when we're at that place where all we care about is the next hit, and that's literally all I was living for at that point. And I would look at myself in the mirror, even there towards the end when it was the worst, I would look at myself in the mirror. I had lost. I was 190 pounds. I was a a shell of who I am now. But I would look in the mirror and I would cry. And I would tell myself, in the mirror, you're going to die. You are going to kill yourself. Stop doing this. And, And I would cry. And then when I was done crying, I would go sit in my chair. I would pack the pipe up and I would hit it again so it's like we have this saying in 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 narcotics anonymous that you know one is too many and a thousand is never enough because once once you take that first one everybody out the way because that's it Mm -hmm. so being being well okay let's go back to your your question about my rock bottom Uh, and mom coming out the second time you know by that time ashley had taken josephine and had moved to her mom's house and had told me that this family would not be here for me unless i sought help and sitting upstairs in this room in my house completely quiet doing drugs um I think it just hit me that that I knew I was going to die. I knew it. I was having heart palpitations. Things were starting to kind of shut Show down. Themselves, yeah. I was starting to shut down. I was getting no sleep. I was not eating good. I was. I was just probably weeks away from having like a heart attack. And um, you know, I sat there, and I didn't want to lose my family. You know, we have to, we have to, we have to want to get clean for something, right? And, and most of the time it can't be because I want to save my job or, 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 you know, more mundane things that you can replace. For me, it was, I love my daughter. I love my wife and I love myself. I don't deserve to die like this so I told Ashley that um I wanted to go to rehab but I wanted to go to rehab out of state I didn't want to go somewhere where I could call my dealer and have him come pick me up one night (laughs) and head to a hotel and get high so we did it we did it we we scheduled it um I still continued to use up until the day I I got to rehab I actually got to rehab in Knoxville at like in five in Tennessee. The, in Tennessee at like five in the afternoon. Uh, it was cold. It was April. It was cold. I had a big jacket on. And in the jacket, I concealed crack pipe and some crack. <laughs> because I needed one last hit, right? before One, just one more. And that's, that's us. That's addicts. It's like, not just one more. No, 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 just one more. And you say that a thousand times because it's never enough. It's not just one more so i went to the bathroom before they did the intake i got out my crack pipe and i don't think ashley even knows this but she'll know it now after she listens to this that's where i was
1: Mm -hmm. who took you to rehab Ashley. just the two of you
0: just the two of us yeah and uh anyway i i had one last two raw in the bathroom at rehab i threw it in the trash and then i surrendered i said i'm done i hope this works and finding out you know over the next 30 days of being in rehab um, that hope is sort of a a bullshit word to use because it's more than that it takes honesty open mindedness and willingness and we say in the groups that with those three you are well on your way Mm -hmm so the first step to the 12 steps is admitting you are powerless over your addiction right admitting to a higher power that you are powerless over drugs Mm -hmm. truly and surrendering and you know ashley said that that first night that i was in rehab and she knew that i couldn't use drugs And I was so far from home that it was almost impossible for me to do anything. I shouldn't be doing. She said that was like the best night's sleep she had had in years. Mm. And that, you know, it's, it's a, it's a miracle. It's truly a miracle that both my wife and I have managed to stop using drugs and stop drinking together and stay stopped. Yeah. and actually work some form of a program mm-hmm. and and learn like new ways to live without those things.
1: Mm-hmm. How long have you been clean now?
0: It is uh it was 5 years in April so a little more than 5 years clean.
1: And what
0: about Ashley? Ashley has 1 year more than I do. So she is a little over 6 years. Yeah. She does AA, I do NA. They're one and the same. Alcohol is a drug, but but AA is a little more old school where AA was first, NA came in. You don't go into an AA meeting and say, I'm Ryan, I'm an addict. You say, I'm Ryan, I'm an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Even if alcohol wasn't my drug of choice. Mm-hmm. But we all share the same principles. Yeah. Right.
1: How has life been for you the last five years? I mean, you have, it is a lifelong commitment to yourself. It's now a part of your life. This recovery, this, I mean, you go to meetings regularly. You are sponsors for people. You have had people in your life who have.
0: I'm not sponsor, not a sponsor yet. Okay. That <laughs> is, that, so that is something that I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm striving for that. However, that has not been a reality. Ashley has, has sponsored several women and that's Amazing. admirable. I, I strive for that. Um, my recovery, the first three years of my recovery were very present with recovery, it was like multiple multiple meetings a week. For the first year it was like a meeting almost every day. It was it was, you know, the second year was like two or three meetings a week. I've gradually sort of found a f- No, I mean so look, I've found I found I've been going to meetings less than I should be. I'm actually gonna try to catch a meeting with Ben while I'm here, which will be nice. <laughs> um but I can admit when when i'm not working an adequate program right now i'm not mm-hmm. um i'm just being honest you have to be accountable uh, you can't sit here and talk to yourself up when you um haven't been doing those things exactly i'm not using mm-hmm. right i'm not carrying the lying deceitful mischievous behavior that i was carrying mm-hmm. right i've i've made some i think pretty drastic changes in the way that i approach life in general now because the program has taught me some tools and has taught me some things that i now know that i can't unknow Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. such as like learning to only control the things that you can and not the things you can't and if you can learn to sort of let things go When you know they're out of your control and let let you let your higher power sort of take it on and do what it's going to do because the eventual outcome is meant to be regardless right there's a million things in the last five years of being clean that have happened that before i would have resorted to using
1: Mm
0: -hmm. right my wife and i get in a fight instantly i'm like let's go escape this and do some drugs yeah now it's like we face problems head-on, um, and I can get through things. I can get through problems in my life now so much quicker and easier without like using drugs. Yeah. It's a big deal. You know, Dad always dad and see Dad being dad, doesn't understand any of this shit. So when I talk to Dad about being clean and sober in every way possible. Mm-hmm. You know, and he still offers me like sips of fucking cognac when I go to his house. He's like, oh, come on, just just one, just sip. one sip will be fine. You don't have to go uh, home and drink more. I'm like, Dad, that's uh, not the point. Yeah, the point is, for me, one is too many, and a thousand's never going to be enough. Once I take that first one, why would I want to take a sip of that yeah. and then have to have my tail between my legs going into my meeting, having to start back with a white shirt? and 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 saying what what made you do that like why did you do that you know relapse is never a a uh, singular event we don't go five years 10 years 20 years clean and then just one day wake up and say i'm doing drugs so like relapse is more a a chain of events that start with like complacency and procrastination and getting yourself into old ways of acting and thinking that leads you eventually to this point that's away from recovery away from the rooms of narcotics anonymous and into old behaviors mm-hmm. that's when relapse and it happens all the time mm-hmm. like what keeps me more so clean and in the rooms is the fact that i get to see guys with 25 years come back for a white shit 25 years of no drugs and then they are come back for a white shit are fucked up you know do mm-hmm. will be that guy yeah So I'm grateful. I'm grateful. I think gratitude is one of the biggest things for me now in life is being grateful for all that I have, all that I do. And the fact that I don't use drugs anymore, because I will, I will die. If I pick up drugs again, I will most likely die. Because you start back up right where you left off. And it's even worse. So For me moving forward these days it's just not an option you know i get to be a father to josephine i get to be a husband to my wife i get to be a happy person i get to be a A brother who communicates with his sister i get to have a relationship with my dad who now lives a couple hours from me and and my mother who all she ever does is worry about us
1: and now she can like ashley said when you checked into rehab i think that mom Honestly, through the 35 years that both of us have been on this earth, she's now sleeping probably better than she ever has, knowing that you're clean. Because I was always, I think, too, I always wanted to compensate for your bad behavior right. <laughs> and be the the perfect daughter and sister. So I think that um, the fact that both of us now are doing great things and we are we're, we're good
0: life is chapters right yeah life is a mom, book will, of mom will
1: tell it that's a mom quote
0: it's a mom quote but it's it holds true because right now everything is really wonderful as far yeah. as our health our relationships so i think it's really important to savor these times, because as life is a roller coaster and a chapter of books, we are bound to face things in the future that are going to be detrimental to us. Whether that's tragedy, health, it's going to come.
1: Yeah. Well-
0: and, you know, I think it's important to be in a state of mind before that type of stuff happens. Like, I can't be in addiction if mom gets sick. I can't be in active addiction if my daughter gets sick or you get sick or my wife gets like.
1: Let's segue that because you just listed all of the women in your life. And it's something that I want to talk to you about the different dynamics of all the women in your life and how you manage through those because you also not only are they just you have a wife, you have a daughter, you have a sister, you have a mom. We're all very strong women. Yes. <laughs> and we're all very different women. So just talk us through the the women in your life and how you how you nourish each of those relationships separately because we are all so different. And and the relationships are different obviously.
0: You know, I think I think that my wife has taught me a, a world of, of respect for um, how I have relationships with women in my life. Um, Ashley is the most honest, humble human being that i've met and i think that that uh how can i explain this being with her for now almost 13 years and starting off that relationship being just a dishonest prick who was showing no respect she's taught me i mean it's weird to say but she's taught me a lot she's taught me a lot in how to like be a
1: better son better better brother
0: better brother better husband better son i mean like she i think subconsciously she has been such a big role in in who i am right now too Mm -hmm. because she was always there for me but she wasn't like she wasn't always nice about it Mm -hmm. her mom was Mm -hmm. if i fucked up it was like consequence with ashley consequences that were like you tangible know? yeah absolutely and you know i fucking hated it in the beginning i fought it it's like consequence fuck you you know we'll <laughs> yeah. do something else stupid fuck you that was my that was my way of thinking and you know i fi- i think i finally started to catch on you know to how how to be just more vulnerable and um honest with myself communicate better i'm not perfect at it i think that dad's one big instillment in me um, from when i was a kid up until now as an adult has been not communicating your emotions yeah. keep it all inside and then let it fucking show up in in you know um uh, what's the word for that um, passive ways mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. be passive with your moods act act certain ways that are going to elicit a response from your wife. that's not going to be good (laughs) so anyway she's she's amazing and i love her and uh, my relationship with you i think has always been you know we we always had each other's back we went for periods of time where we didn't talk much and you went to college i was
1: in france off in france i was doing drugs i
0: was having a baby you were in college with your relationships and And your friends and your stuff. And, you know, we just lived two separate lives, but being, you know, here right now, every time we see each other, it's like, we've never even lost touch. Mm
1: -hmm. That's the thing I think about maybe our family is that's untraditional to most families that we don't talk all the time. We don't like, we sometimes don't see each other. I mean, I haven't seen my dad in over a year. I haven't seen you in a year so. But at the end of the day, if I needed something, when I was a freshman in high school, even though we were not that connected, I always felt connected. Like if I needed you, if I need dad,
0: right. you're there. Well, he still didn't call us back from yesterday.
1: He didn't call us back. He really
0: didn't. I called him twice. I <laughs> so He does not called him back. So, but
1: anyway. you and I, to your point, we've had each other's back. Yes, through our lives, even though we may not have sought it, we knew it was there. Right, and I feel closer to you now in my 30s, yeah, than I ever have. Yeah, I think that's we right. talk more than we've ever talked in our lives.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think the same the same kind of goes for mom, where she would talk to us every single day if we call She would, <laughs> she would, she, would, she would she would want that, you know. um And I'm trying to be better at that. Yeah, I'm starting mm-hmm. to really sort of think
1: be empathetic to her needs too. like what would make mom happy it's a five minute phone call that takes you five minutes but it means the world
0: to yeah and on, and on top of that getting on planes to come see her just biting the bullet with these things because i think they're so important as we get older and life starts to go by quicker and and oh my god it's already august it was just thanksgiving mm-hmm. like as time starts to speed up which I feel as though it has heading into my you know mid thirties, uh, late thirties. I think if I start if I start basing seeing mom like once a year or twice a year until she's not here anymore, that really only equates to maybe like ten or twelve times. Oh, so if I start, on it. well, see, but that's the way to think about it to really kick you into gear to Just go. See. I can't do that. Yeah. I can't live with myself seeing my mom a dozen more times before she's gone. Right. That's just not going to work for me. Right. And I can't ex- expect her to make the moves to come see me. That's right. not fair. Yeah. So, you know, we need
1: to make the effort. Right yeah, now.
0: and I think I'm I'm going to, you know, make that a priority over the next few years to really make an effort to come, um, even if it's just by myself or just Josephine and me or you know, if we all can't get here together, it's like still come still come spend that quality time i've got dad next door now pretty much so i see him every month or 13. Yeah. Um, but you know my relationships with the women in my life now are better than they've ever been in my entire life i have a solid relationship with my wife i have a solid relationship with my sister I have a solid relationship with my mother. I have a solid relationship with my mother-in-law. I have a solid relationship with my sister-in-law. I have a, I think, I think good relationship with my almost 13-year-old daughter. I think she loves me a lot. But I think she's at the age where, you know, hormones are coming into effect. And I'm having to really kind of (laughs) just start to like. Put the shields up, and you know, yeah. and try not to react. I've been such a reactive person. Another thing I think I take from Dad, uh, you know, one of the traits that he's given me is, you know, something happens and you just react, yeah. without processing or thinking through.
1: But you are so much more aware than Dad, in the sense where, like, I've seen you maybe snap on Joe for something that she rightfully deserved to be snapped about. But then like five minutes later, you're like, oh, BP, come here. I'm sorry. I didn't well, mean to snap at you. So you're like yeah. aware of it, which is, yeah. again, you can snap as long as you're aware. But she needs that whip. A she bit. gets
0: she gets some chances before the snap happens. There you go. So, you know, especially with her mom. And and the thing about parenting, right, co-parenting is, is difficult at times because Ashley handles Josephine in ways that I envy Mm-hmm. Um she's so patient. And Josephine still digs, you know, I think Josephine also has that
1: like in you. her
0: like me this defiance, this like fuck you, you know? Yeah. And and I think that that will benefit her down the road in her life as an adult. But I think that as a kid, teenager almost,
1: it's hard to know where to put that energy.
0: The boundaries are sort of hard to know where to place at times, you know, aside from like respect. Like you're going to show respect and and Ashley doesn't have any patience really when Josephine is disrespectful. Mm-hmm. But when, when Ashley is trying to get Josephine to do something or to listen or you know follow the rule, uh, it's like very it's patient. A nice way. It's yeah. a chance. It's a second chance, a third chance, it's a fourth chance. And then it's like, <laughs> it's on. Yeah. Fuck you. You want to keep doing this? Let's go. Yeah. And then it shuts down pretty quick, but then Ashley feels guilty sometimes. And I, and I understand. And it's just, you know, parenting parenting a teenager is difficult and uh i think we haven't really seen (laughs) any of it yet because she's only 12 yeah so you know talk to me let's do another one of these in four years and see four or five years and see how how life has sort of evolved from this conversation
1: it's so uh rewarding as a sister to watch you be a dad because you're so good at it. And I remember you telling me once and I'll never forget it. Cause I was so upset at something that Josephine was doing and you've said it before I am dad. So I get all irritated and worked up about something that's not even my child. And you're just like, I am not going to be dad. Yeah. I'm not trying to scare my child to the point that dad scared us. Right. And so, you know, that kind of stuck with me too, because you are breaking a pretty deep generational wound cycle. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, dad's dad was scary. And I can imagine that Grandpa Maurice's dad was scary. And so it was dad was doing the best he could raising us based on how he was raised, what he knew, how he did things. And you have broken this cycle. So watching you as a parent, I'm just you know, in awe because maybe I have no patience, but
0: well, you know, I I appreciate that. I think I think being a parent is a position where you have to get outside of yourself so much. Yeah. Right. You can't you can't be always worried about what you want when you want it. Can't really do that as a parent. Has to be more sacrifice, more more selflessness involved and patience, you know. But I, I'm grateful. I mean, I'm grateful for it. I wouldn't want anything else because I know that this stage of my life and this age of Josephine is going to pass, and you know, before I know it, she's going to be an adult. Yeah. And I, all I want with my kid is to be able to have her trust me when she's older, that she can confide in me when she's older. She can come to me or her mom with any problem she has and not be afraid of. The reaction we're going to have because she fucked up or did something she knows she shouldn't have done. So I think that's the end goal uh, for me, and I think also for Ashley. And I think that it's it's a full time job. I mean, it's a full time job. So, yeah, you know, fortunately, I I work for myself, so that's a bonus, and I think that it allows me to spend quality time with my family when I want to, um, and it allows me to create my own schedule. And I'm grateful for that too. I mean, it's just, there's a lot to be grateful for in life for them. So harping on small things is kind of, it's not worth it.
1: Yeah. It's just not worth it. All right. Well, I think a great ending topic to just quickly chat about is your, your entrepreneurial spirit because you know, I did all of the things. I went to high school, I graduated college, I started a career with a corporation, and I climbed the ladder, and I, I did that. And my brother, being the the yin to my yang, did the complete opposite. He dropped out of high school, moved abroad, learned a language, has traveled all over the world, has, you know, started his own business from nothing to a very successful business. So, Ryan, as an entrepreneur, what are what are the, the, the key qualities that you have, or the things that have made you successful as as your own business owner?
0: Uh, you know, I think that it's it's been a a business that you know you 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 went to college, you finished high school, went to college, you did take that path of following everybody's footsteps to a position that you had interest in right and and i was while you were making those steps i was serving tables in a restaurant. it wasn't like it wasn't like i had this you know grandiose idea just pop into my head it was it was uh it was actually by chance that i fell into the business that i fell into and uh, and we can talk about like how that's grown over the last twelve or thirteen years, but
1: have you um, been doing it that long?
0: Yeah, yeah, it's been about twelve years now, and uh, right before Josephine was born. So, working at a restaurant in Santa Fe with no direction, guidance, future outlook to anything interesting, um, I just was, you know, trying to raise a, a toddler, an infant, and pay the bills. So. You know, waiting tables allowed that. And it was by chance, just one day on my lunch break, working at La Boca, I was on my phone, Yahoo News, just reading events, and an article came across that was talking about how the Chinese were really making the prices of of fine French wines go up the demand from china was was making this little boom of of french wine and i was like i lived in france i knew a little bit about wine i knew what the good wines were um and and i just remember i remember my previous job we had a crazy wine list full of all these french wines that nobody ever fucking ordered by the way <laughs> right so People would, you know, order steak dinners and then they would order like the duck horns or the chemists or the the California wines that all these Texans want. And all these nice French wines just sat in the cellar. So I had interest in this. This Yahoo article piqued my interest. I was like, French wine, prices up. I worked at a restaurant, a lot of French wine. Let's see if there's like any anything here. Mm -hmm. So then I Googled like if I wanted to sell some French wine. I had some of this French wine, I wanted to sell it and get these Chinese people prices, who would I call? Right. Mm-hmm. I started doing some Google research, and I found this gentleman in Connecticut named Ben, who had a little company called Celerators. It was a wine retailer, but he advertised that he purchased French wines from people. So I said, aha, there's the guy who's going to buy it if I had it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, how do we get it? So let's go back to this restaurant and let's Class. talk to the manager. Mm-hmm. So I go back to the restaurant. Actually, I went home that night after work. I got on my laptop. I pulled up Rio Chama's wine list. And I started picking off some French wines from the list. And I emailed this guy, Ben. I said, what would you pay me for? This bottle, this bottle, this bottle, and this bottle. Okay. And he was like $2,000, 1500 2000 1000 A bottle per
1: bottle.
0: Okay. Okay. Go back to the wine list. And how much are these bottles on this wine list? 180, 200, 150, 200. So you bought them. So I asked if I could purchase these wines off the list. And it was like this snap response. Absolutely. We never sell any of those anyway in the restaurant. How many do you want? I didn't have much cash. Right. I only had like 800 bucks. So I bought all that I could, and he even gave me a discount. He gave me like 30% off those list prices. Jeez. So I got six bottles of wine for 800 bucks. Nice. All right? Okay. And I emailed Ben, and I said, so what are you going to pay me for these six bottles? And he was like, $10,000. <laughs> I was like, cha-ching. I have to spend $800 and I'm going to make on those 10 bottles. I said, send me a box. So he overnighted me a shipping box. I put the bottles of wine in the styrofoam. Never seen one of these things before. I was like, this looks pretty cool. Like, oh, I hope they're <laughs> yeah. safe. It's glass. Are you sure? And a, and a little peel and stick return label. And I taped it up and I put the thing and I taped it extra. And I was. Yeah,
1: like, so careful. Like,
0: this is all I have. This yeah. is everything on the line right here. Yeah. <laughs> and I dropped it off at FedEx. I made sure that I got the tracking number. And I literally went back home on my laptop.
1: You just watched it.
0: And I watched it <laughs> all night. I didn't sleep. I kept refreshing every like 10 minutes to see if there was an update. And there was like one span of like three hours where nothing updated. And I was just like, oh my God, it's broken. It's lost. It's stolen. <laughs> Something's happened at this point. This, yeah.
1: I and crashed. at this point, you haven't—you
0: don't get the money. Oh, I haven't got anything. So I, anyway, <laughs> Ashley and I are both just, you know, we're, we're servers. She's a bartender. I'm a server. We're making jack shit. Uh, we, we, we have bills. And, and anyway. I crash out. I wake up at like 8 o'clock in the morning. I hit refresh. It show's delivered. Cha-ching. I call Ben. I say, hey, Ben, did you get the bottles? Yeah, everything looks great. Sending you a check overnight tonight. Gave me a tracking number. That next day, I kept watching for this check that was supposed to arrive, right, for like $9,800. Check arrived on time. Big Showed me this check. Drove to the bank. Thank of America. Handed them this check. And I was like, I want to cash this. And there, there's a handwritten personal check. They're looking at me like, I'm in my work uniform because right. I, I went to work. Yeah. And I wanted to cash this check.
1: Just to get it cashed and like get your money.
0: Just to get the money. Yeah. We've got plans. We want to leave Santa Fe. We're like, this is our ticket. Yep. Yeah. We've got some money. Yeah. All right. So I get the cash. Now this opens this door. For me now. I had an idea that I I planned it out, figured it out, executed it, and was rewarded for it. So now all I could think about was where else can you find restaurants with wine collections that will sell you off of their wine list bottles? Yeah,
1: because they also get allocations, well, they get yeah. the DRC bottles. So, there. so at this point. You've made a connection with Ben. Yeah. You know Ben is the guy right now in the industry that you know of that's buying wine. And he's probably
0: doing... There were step- several step- others, step- others. But I—I I was the first one I found. He answered the fucking phone. He communicated with me the whole time. I didn't feel the need to go explore any other yeah, options. Yeah. It was like, Ben's the man. Here's the deal. So did
1: you keep doing business with Ben?
0: Ben was my partner for the next like seven or eight years. Exclusively and
1: and then how did that relationship evolve like so
0: so we left after after that first deal it was just a few months later we were packed and on our way to north carolina and i was just incessant on on looking online and finding restaurants i was going all over the country i was looking at restaurants in milwaukee Mm -hmm. calling them, hey do you still have these bottles of Lafitte, do you have these Moutons? Hold on, let me look. Okay, yeah, we've got six of these and three of these. Look, I'm going to fly out tomorrow and pick them up. Can I? Sure. I'd fly to Milwaukee. I'd fly there, you know, just to make like 2500 bucks. Because at the time, it was so easy. Yeah. And then that's when the boom really happened with wine. And everybody and their mom started doing it. They started trying to call the restaurants. So I would call around and the restaurants started to catch on. Mm. They're like, why do people keep calling us asking for French wine? Meanwhile, I've literally picked through almost every fucking restaurant in the country in the span of two years. So I'm like, yeah, I'm doing well.
1: Yeah.
0: And I'm like, okay, so the restaurant stuff is going to end soon because I've I've worn out all my leads here.
1: Of it's, the like really nice restaurants. Of, of, of restaurants.
0: Yeah. Like that, that way of doing it. There's gotta be people in this country who have just insane personal collections of wine. How do we get in touch with them?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So then it dawned on me to create a website. Wine Liquidators, we made it all fancy. I hired this like army veteran from, from, uh, oh, where is he from? Some city in North Carolina and he was this web guy and he made me this website. At the time it was like awesome, but if you look back on Wine Liquidators now, it's just a piece of shit. Little, like, yeah. you know, word document website. Anyway, we started advertising on Google
1: mm-hmm.
0: when it was like 30 cents a click. And I would advertise nationally. And I remember the first week my website went up. It was live. It was done. It was ready. I had a phone number on there. It was like, we buy private wine collections. All these pictures and this fancy shit. And I started my first Google campaign. I borrowed $5,000 from Ben. And I said, this will be worth, trust me. me. He said, okay, send me a check. I put all that 5,000 into a one month supply of Google ads. The first week, no calls. Like, fuck, am I doing this wrong? What's going on? I'm spending money because people are clicking on my ads, but nobody's calling me. Second week starts. It's a Monday, nothing happens. I'm just sitting in our apartment. In carry because we have nothing going on. Ashley's not working. I'm not working. We're just sitting there hoping to get some leads. We've worn out all the restaurants. We've spent all that money. Now it's time made
1: a little bit, but you're
0: made a little bit, but it was like a few thousand here, a few thousand there. It was it was getting us by. Yeah. And then that second week, I got my first call. I remember vividly about a guy, and um, he was at Iowa, and he had a. Fairly decent wine collection. I think it was 100 bottles. And it was huge for me. It was like, wow, light bulb, this is it. And on that first deal, I made about $15,000 just brokering it to Ben. And I started getting call after call after call. call. 2,000 bottle collections, 5,000 bottle collection. Then I started getting calls from a gentleman in California. <laughs> and this story turns out, you know, to be one of the the french laundry the the french laundry story and that was a humbling experience in this business where i felt like i was just untouchable i was like making money i was wheeling and dealing and i was negotiating and i was traveling and it was great and then i bought i bought wine over the course of a few year relationship with a gentleman in california turns out all the wine was stolen from the french laundry and and that was sort of like a turning point in the wine business where um i caught a lot of flack for that even though you know i didn't do anything um like i wasn't involved it wasn't
1: like a like you were just unaware you were like this is great wine i'm gonna buy it
0: it was naivety right it was like it was like ego it was like not asking the right questions it was just looking at the dollar signs at the end of the deal mm-hmm. and um, and that was humbling because I I ended up having to forfeit obviously I called the the police I called the FBI they came out they took all the wine I returned all the wine um, flew to San Francisco testified for the grand jury you know had to repay my partner back 120000 dollars because we were in the hole we already paid these guys money
1: yeah, I was getting death
0: him. threats from them it was just it was just insane. Yeah. These were organized crime. This wasn't just like some stupid shit. This was like the, these were dangerous people. Yeah. Um
1: so then you went to bourbon.
0: Then bourbon was kind of starting its uprise. It was like getting popular again and 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 I just pivoted. It was just it was easy for me. It was it was easy. I already had a system I already had a process finding wine, brokering wine, selling wine, you know, do the same for whiskey. Mm-hmm. And that kind of blossomed into what it is today and and you know um i think we're probably one of the more successful alcohol brokering companies that exist i mean it's just yeah good for you it's
1: i have to ask a question that a lot of people ask me when i tell them what you do and if they're close enough to me to know that you are five years sober how do you work in the bourbon, the rare bourbon where you're, you have your hands on some really beautiful bottles in your own personal collection too, because you're collecting, but you can't drink any of it.
0: So you how? Know, I, yeah, that's very ironic. And I, I get, I get eyebrows lifted every time I tell somebody like what I do and they know that I'm, I'm sober and clean. Um,
1: it's just a business. You know, thing. it's a
0: commodity for me. It's like it's it's a business. I treat it with respect and and in that regard I'm not tempted. I don't find myself packing bottles going, "Oh, do you really want to open that or should we take just a little sit?" Like that doesn't it doesn't happen. Yeah. It's just I'm comfortable with it. I respect it. It's not an option. Drinking is just not an option.
1: Okay.
0: When 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 that's your mindset in life you know that it's just not an option and that's what it is so um and it's also pretty much all i know and as far as business is concerned uh i i wouldn't ever want to jeopardize that right you know i don't want to jeopardize something that's that's done this well for you that's done this well for my family and i so it's it's pretty straightforward. And, you know, Ashley doesn't tempt her at all. Yeah. It's just fucking expensive bottles of booze that we laugh at the prices people pay for it because yeah. it's stupid.
1: What's been your highest priced bottle, single bottle?
0: Highest priced single bottle. Um, probably the McAllen Lalique 50 Year. It's a funny story about that bottle. How much is it? Well, right now it's about 200000 for a single bottle. But about six years ago when I was in Santa Fe, when I first sort of entered the whiskey side of the business seven years ago, maybe I purchased two of those bottles from a lady in California for $10,000 for both because at the time they were only worth like $15,000 a piece. So I bought them for 10. I flipped them for 15 the same day. I never even touched the bottles. But I made 10 grand. I felt like, you know, top of the world. Hell yeah, you just made 10 grand on two bottles and you have to touch them. Fast forward now. That's like almost a half a million dollars in two bottles. So it's like it's it's crazy to see how the market has gone from where it was price wise to now this astronomical, yeah. unobtainable for any normal person commodity
1: mm-hmm.
0: so you know I got lucky I read an article one day Yep. Yeah. but see I think that's where it turns into there is opportunity kind of everywhere right and it's whether or not you are are in a mindset or in a place where you can see and pick out the opportunity and, and take it and run with it and make something of it so I managed to do that and I'm grateful for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I'm also 35 and I think to myself what else I would like to do mm-hmm. as I get older, you know, um, I don't know. I don't have those answers. I'm, I'm trying to be as present as I can in life and kind of just take it all day by day. And yeah. not get too caught up with what's going to happen two weeks or two years from now and just sort of be in the moment. I think that's important.
1: Well, that's the perfect segue into the finale of the podcast. And it's a question that Brittany and I ask each other um, at the end of every episode, and it's where are you finding your joy right now?
0: I, I find my joy in more simple things like coaching my daughter's softball team and being active and being you know healthy and being present um and being patient you know things that i've struggled with my whole life are kind of like or you better right now better now yeah better so like nothing is perfect right now and i don't think it ever will be i think that's a a, a bad you know assumption or or a hope to have is for things to be perfect i think it's just all about progress so if i can continue to make progress in my life in little ways one thing at a time and try not to overwhelm myself with you know personal goals and personal tasks you know they say like procrastination is the grease on the bobsled to hell you know just take it one thing at a time and 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 don't not finish things that you start and keep your word like do what you say you're going to do
1: it's one of the four agreements be impeccable
0: with your word yeah be impeccable with your word and um that was one of the books that i read when i went to uh treatment that was the first book i read
1: the four agreements the
0: four agreements and um, yeah
1: okay one last question tell me what do you love most about me being your sister
0: julia julia the thing that i love most about you being my sister just that you're my sister and i was lucky enough to have you be my sister you know because i wouldn't want you any other way Mm -hmm. through all of your things and all of my things i just i love you for who you are i don't have any expectations of you yeah so I think that's, that's progress. That's a good thing to to be, you know, thinking about is I just, I love you for who you are.
1: And I love you. I'm so grateful you're alive. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Thank you for being on the podcast. That was, that was awesome.
0: Well, I had a great Thanks time. This is my first podcast. So, ever? Ever. So I'm glad that I was with you.
1: I know. Well, we'll talk to you all soon. Thank you so much for being here. Bye.
0: Bye.